All right, well, hello, Grace Family Church. My name is Hal Mayer. I'm the campus pastor at the Temple Terrace Campus. I'd like to welcome all of you that are in this room, all of you that are watching online, and of course, at all of our seven campuses. We've got our Lutz group in here. We have our Carrollwood Campus. Yeah, give it up for you guys. South Tampa campus, our Clearwater campus is meeting this Sunday, which is awesome. We also have our Ebor campus, Orlando Lakes campus, and of course, my home campus, the Temple Terrace campus. And if you look at your outline today, you, you saw this. The, the title of the outline was Love Like Jesus, which, which seems simple. You're going, how this is very simplistic that we're talking about this in church today. But here's the problem with saying love like Jesus. When it comes to love, you find out very quickly in life that your idea of what love is is very different than other people's, right? We know that. We talked about this like two weeks ago. There's, we, each of us have a love language. It's a way that we receive love the best. But we also know this, and you find this in marriage. There's certain words that you say that you believe convey love, but are received in a very different way. Or I found this out in high school. There's even certain words that if you spell them a certain way are, are conveyed very differently. And here's what I mean by that. My, I... I had one girlfriend during Valentine's Day, and I would love to say that that was a fiscal move, but that was more of just me not being able to say hi to girls. But I had one girlfriend one time during Valentine's Day, and we had been going out for four weeks. And because we had been going out for four weeks, we started using the L word. We started using love. Why? Because we were in high school and we were dating for four weeks. Remember my dad asking me, so you love her? That means you're going to marry her. I'm like, no, no. He goes, but you said love. I'm like, yeah, but I don't love, love her. Okay. So I, I did what you had to do for Valentine's Day. I got her the chocolates. I got her the card. I wrote inside of it. I got her the flowers. I got to school early, put it in her locker and, and went away to class knowing that she would find it after first period and she would just be head over heels excited about it. So I get out of class first period and I go and I walk over to her locker and there she is crying. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm like, what's wrong? She said, nothing. Don't worry about it. And I said, okay. And I walked off. Because I didn't know at that point that when a girl says nothing's wrong, you're supposed to ask her 15 more times, what's wrong? And so I walk off and I go to class and I get out of my second period class and her friends are waiting for me. They're like, how? I couldn't believe what you did. I'm like, what? What did I do? Please tell me. I have no idea. They're like, how? You just need to go talk to her. So I go over and I talk to her at her locker and I'm like, what is going on? She said, how? When, when you wrote the letter at the bottom, you spelled love, L-U-V, instead of L-O-V-E. I was like, you got to help me here. She goes, L-U-V is what I say to my friends. L-O-V-E is what I say to the man that I love that I want to spend the rest of my life with. I'm like, I was like, I thought we were just on love, not love, love. But it's true. And here, here's the problem, and, and really the reason that I bring this up is it, it's, love is so important. I mean, when asked the greatest commandment, Jesus said, love God and love others. In fact, you even see Jesus tell his disciples, he says, hey, here's the deal. The way that I loved you is the way that you're supposed to love others. And then he goes on in John 13, 35, and he says this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love is important. Love shows the world that we follow after Jesus. Love shows the world that we are his followers and we believe in him. But what does it mean to love like Jesus? And this is confusing. It was confusing for the disciples. 
Because when they watched Jesus, they thought they understood him. But then the next moment, they're like, wait a second, what's going on? Because there were times when Jesus loved someone and he shows all kinds of love and all kinds of compassion. But then there's other times where Jesus actually rebuked someone. And when he went into the temple and they were using the temple to make money, he threw the tables over and the disciples are going, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. This, is, this doesn't make sense at all. Yet when you see Jesus, there was something so incredibly different about him. There's something that was so incredibly different about him, something that caused the people that you would think wouldn't want to be around him to absolutely be attracted to him. Yet the people that you thought wanted to be around him, the religious elite that wanted to kill him. Like, what was it that was different about his love? And in John 1, we see John just kind of lay it out. He says this. He says, the word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Get this, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, he continues, says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. We see this. What did grace and truth have to do with this? That's exactly who Jesus was. I think sometimes we can think this. Oh, he was 50% grace. He was 50% truth. No, Jesus was 100% grace and 100% truth. And this is tough because this feels like many times grace and truth seem like they're on two different sides of the room. How can you be both? Because truth says you're accountable, but grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you're broken, but, God, but grace says God is the healer. And he can make anyone whole, right? Truth says, hey, you're going to have to work at this, but grace says come as you are. Truth says your sin has consequences, but grace says there's always a way back. I think the problem is this, as Christians, we can just be honest. We tend to go to one side or the other. We tend to be comfortable being more truth or more grace. And Jesus said, hey, if you want to show the world my love, you have to be both grace and truth. And we see this in several stories in the Bible. One of the first ones was when Jesus came in contact with a Samaritan woman. Jesus and his disciples were going through Samaria, which was a big deal because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds, but on top of that, when they married outside of the Jewish faith, they also accepted other faiths, and so the Jewish people literally hated them more than the Romans who were oppressing them, and Jesus goes and sits down at this well. He sends the disciples into town to get lunch, and this woman comes up to the well, and Jesus speaks to the woman and says, hey, can you get me some water? And the woman's amazed because both Jesus was a man and a rabbi who wouldn't normally talk to a woman, but he was also Jewish, which means he wouldn't want to talk to a Samaritan. And she goes, you, I can't believe you're talking to me. He goes, you don't understand. If you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. And she's confused. She's like, what? You don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about? He goes, I have a very different kind of water. She's like, tell me about it. He goes, okay, I'll tell you about it. Go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, I know. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're with right now, you're not married to. Like, Dang, Jesus. Right? He just throws it out there. She's like, you must be a prophet. He goes, hey, not only am I a prophet, I'm actually the one you've been waiting for. He goes, I'm the Messiah. And here's what's so crazy about this. The first person we see in scripture that Jesus says he's the Messiah to was a Samaritan woman. 
And then she goes to her town and tells all the people, hey, come see the man that told me everything I've ever done. But not, the, not only did Jesus show grace and truth to random people, but even his disciples in the way that he picked them. I mean, they were talking to Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. The other disciples weren't happy about this because tax collectors were not looked at in the great way. In fact, tax collectors had their own category. You'll see many times in the Bible, it says Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. They were their own group. I think some of us can understand that. And here's the reason why. It's because they were Jewish people, but they worked for the Roman Empire. And they would collect taxes and take extra on top of it to make themselves rich. So the disciples are telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, we don't need to be hanging out with Matthew. He's going to ruin your reputation. Jesus says, hey, if you're worried about that, guess what? Matthew's getting all of his tax collector friends together for a party, and we're going. Jesus is like, I need you to understand, I'm not here to worry about my reputation. I came here to save souls. Do we see it time and time again? I mean, when Jesus was on the cross being crucified, one guy next to him, it says that he was surrounded by two thieves. We don't believe that they're actually thieves because they wouldn't have been crucified. They would have been thrown in the mines. These were men that couldn't be trusted not to hurt or to kill the person they're working next to. These are awful people. Yet on one side, the thief was mocking Jesus. The other side said, we don't even deserve to be crucified next to him. And he says this to Jesus. He says, hey, will you remember me when you get into heaven? And Jesus said, not only will I remember you, but you'll be there with me. And we read that and we're going, wait a second, Jesus. He just gets in the last second like that. Like he wasn't even baptized. Like he even go through a dry spell and have to recommit his life at camp. Like, come on. What's going on? And Jesus goes, no, no, that's the way I work. I'm 100% grace. I think one of the best stories is when Jesus is with his disciples and they bring a woman who had just committed adultery and they bring him out in front of him naked. And they say, hey, look, the law of Moses says we should stone her for committing adultery. What should you, what do you say we do? And he knows that this is a trap because under Roman law, if they did stone her, they, he'd be thrown in prison. But instead of just answering, it's crazy. Jesus just gets down on the ground and he starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he was writing. Some people say the names of the people there. Some people say he was writing down the sins of each person, which if that was the case, I'd be like, bye. But he doesn't say anything. And finally he stands up, he goes, okay, we'll stone her. But let the person who has never sinned cast the first stone. Let the person that's never committed adultery cast the first stone. Let the, let the man who's never committed adultery in his heart cast the first stone. But the man that's never looked at another woman lustfully cast the first stone. And as they felt convicted, they all walked off. It was just Jesus and this woman. He said, where, where are the people that accuse you? She said, they all live. They all left. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Which is a weird thing. It's a, which one is it, Jesus? I don't condemn you or don't go and sin no more. Like, Yes both. I don't condemn you because I have grace. Go and sin no more because I don't want you to live a life that causes pain to yourself and to the others around you. See, Jesus was filled with grace and truth. And here's why this is so important. You can write this in. Grace saves, truth frees. Grace saves, truth in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. See, grace saves, and the key to grace is in that verse. See, as long as we realize we don't deserve grace, we'll give it to other people. But the moment I think I deserve grace, the moment I think that I worked hard enough for it is the moment I stop giving grace to other people. See, as Christians, we're supposed to give grace to people that don't deserve it. We only do that if we realize we never deserve what God gave us in the first place. And in John 8, Jesus says this. He said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What does it mean the truth will set you free? Because sin in and of itself is a prison. And what sin has is it always has consequences. The more consequences we have, the less free we are to do what God has called us to do. See, truth is needed in our life. Here's the tough part, though. I mean, if we're all honest, when, when I'm pointing out the fault in somebody else, I tend to quote verses about truth. When somebody's pointing out the fault in me, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa what about all the verses about grace? Right? I mean, we're all that way. When you got in trouble as a kid, did you want the, the parent that was all about truth or the parent that was all about grace? You wanted grace, right? You were hoping that's the only parent that knew about what you did. They talk, apparently. But we know this in life or even in parenting, when you focus on just grace or you focus on just truth, there's consequences, isn't there? When you just go to one side. See, here's one of the consequences. Truth without grace leads to rebellion. Truth without grace leads to rebellion. And here's why. Without grace, there's no way back to God. Without grace, I can't do the Christian life. And without grace, what do I do? I feel condemned. I feel guilt. I feel shame. And I feel like I can't do what God's called me to do. See, what's important about truth is it points out the sin in our lives. We need that. But at the same time, we need the grace to come back to God. Romans 5.20 says it this way. It says, God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they are. But as people send more and more, what does it say? God stopped forgiving. No. It says as people send more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant, more abundant. See, here's the problem with truth. By itself, it leads to legalism. And, and what it does is this. It takes my eyes off of God and it puts it on other people. And instead of looking at God who I should be looking at, who I should be comparing myself to, I start comparing myself to everybody else. And I judge how good of a Christ follower I, I am, not based on how well I'm following God, but how well I am doing compared to everyone else. And so what you see so many times, and many of you have probably seen it with friends or even with kids, is when it's all truth, we rebel against it. Because what's the point of trying to follow after God if I can't get it right? In fact, I would say this, even some of you in here this weekend, some of you that are watching online, you're here not because... You want to be, but because you feel a lot of guilt if you don't show up. That's not at all what God has for us. Yes, he wants us to understand truth, but he wants us to also have grace. Here's the problem that's happened, though. In the past, many of the churches were all on the truth side. Well, the pendulum has swung, and you see a lot of churches and a lot of Christians just about grace. Here's the problem with that. Grace without truth leads to pain. Grace without truth leads to pain because grace without truth says this. I don't care what you do just as long as it makes you happy. But what if what makes them happy leads to pain? What if what makes them happy causes pain to other people? See, that's the problem that we see there. And I want you to understand sin always leads to relational pain. One of the greatest lies that Satan loves to tell us is your sin only affects you. 
Oh, your, your sin only affects you. No, 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 no. It always affects those around us. And God created us for relationships. So one of the biggest things sin does is it separates us from the people around us. And what happens many times is you see people go, hey, it's okay. God's going to forgive me anyway. Romans 6, 1 to 2 says that. It says, well, then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? See, I think one of the problems with grace is grace leads to tolerance. And hear me on this, because I know right now in culture, we're all about tolerance. But here's the problem with tolerance. If I'm tolerant of something that's going to cause you pain, my tolerance is not courage, it's cowardice. Because I would rather sit back and, and show you grace than tell you the truth that would keep you from the pain I know is going to happen. And that's why it's so important to have truth and grace in the church because it's the only way we can talk about hard topics. It's the only way we can talk about the things that God absolutely wants us to. One of our values at Grace Family Church is to be real. And when people hear that, they go, oh, that just means you tell the truth. Yes, but we also tell the truth about grace. And no matter where you are, God has the grace to bring you back. One of the biggest areas that's incredibly tough to do both truth and grace that I've seen is when you talk about sex before marriage. I mean, I, I was in middle school and high school ministry. I had led the young adults and even now in the adult ministry. It's a tough topic to talk about. What's, what's so interesting about it, though, is every time you tell especially high schoolers and young adults, hey, we're going to talk about sex and dating, they all show up. It's like they expect you to like have found like this fifth gospel that says, oh, wait, we found a new one. It says, go ahead and do whatever you want. But it's tough because what, what I've seen in the past is it was all about truth. Hey, if you have sex, you're going to have pain. If you have sex, this is what's going to go on. And they've gone to another level where they go, hey, here's the deal. If you have sex, your marriage will never be good. If you have sex, your husband will never accept you. Your wife will never accept you. And I've heard even a pastor say this. Hey, we don't talk about grace when it has to do with sex. Because if we do, all it's going to lead to is more fornicating. I don't know why that word is funny to me. And I've seen people hurt by that. I've even seen Christians who didn't have sex before marriage. And when they got married, because they were always told it was so dirty, when they had sex in marriage, they still felt dirty. Is there consequences for sex outside of marriage? Absolutely. And I believe this. If you could see what it would look like in your marriage and afterwards, you wouldn't do it. But it's hard to tell you ahead of time what it's going to look like. But at the same time, if you've had sex before marriage, it doesn't mean that God's grace can't help you. You're going to have to work at it. But God can always make you whole. The moment we ever say anything that, hey, you're going to stay that way, that's not at all what the Bible says. This is what's so hard about it. Because it's true. When I talk to young adults, I always want to explain to them, like, I need you to understand sex is powerful. It's powerful. In fact, one scientist said it this way. It's like when you compare the addictiveness of it and also the high that you get, the only drug that's like it is heroin. And I always tell young adults, I'm like, hey, what's the, what's the point of dating? It's to figure out this is the person you want to marry, right? It's to figure out if that's the right person. But here's the problem. It's really hard to see red flags when they're your dealer. And we're like, yeah. And I say this, and what's great is most people are like, oh my gosh, that makes sense. That's why I keep going back to him. That's why I keep doing these things. This is why I keep getting the wrong person. I'm so tired 
of sitting down with men that have been married for about two years and the sex has slowed down. They're like, I don't know this woman. I never saw any of these things. I'm like, we did. We tried to tell you. And then I have people that tell me that are older, like, oh, I've already been married. That doesn't apply to me. And and what happened before? Well, I picked the wrong person. So you're, you're telling me you're okay picking the wrong person again? People normally, they, they, they're like, man, this makes sense. The time where I get the most emails is when I talk about not living together before you get married. If you want to email me, that's fine. It's Pastor Mike Ash at AOL.com. <laughs> but I do, as I talk about it, I'm like, guys, here's what living together before you get married is. It's playing marriage. And marriage is not something that is meant to be played. It's something to be committed to. God created it that way. And on top of that, actually, the stats show over 80% of people who live together before they get married get divorced. But I have people, they're like, we live together, but we're playing for God to bless our relationship. Guys, God is not going to bless a relationship that is purposely doing it the wrong way. And I explain this to young adults, and I'm like, I want you to understand. I'm telling you this not to come across as, as a hurt or to tell you that you're wrong, because I want the best marriage for you. The last time that I talked about this, I I got an email the next day and it started off with the headline, like all caps. How dare you? We've been watching a lot of drama. And and it all caps again, how dare you? Because me and my fiance, uh, we've been in church our entire lives and we prayed about it. And we decided that God said it was okay to move in with each other. I was like, well, here's the problem with that. Um, there's, there are things in the Bible that God doesn't tell us exactly what to do, and we need to pray about it. But when the Bible literally says, don't do it, you don't need to pray about it. And she says, I felt incredibly offended when you shared that statistic about marriage is not making it. I'm like, statistic. She says, I, I felt incredibly offended that you would feel that way, and now we feel like our marriage is not going to make it. And I, and I don't really like that you did it that way. And I think it's perfectly okay what we're doing. And at the bottom, she says, you'll probably never see us again. And then put her name. I responded back and said this. I said, I'm sorry that you are hurt. I need you to understand something. I didn't share those statistics or all those things about living with each other before you're married to make you feel bad about what you're doing. I shared them because I want you to have the healthiest marriage possible. In fact, you may not believe this, but if you show up next week, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation. I love to help you in any way possible. And if you decide right now that you're looking to get married and you need premarital counseling, I want to find the best premarital counseling you can get. In fact, every single semester, we offer an eight-week premarital course. I would love to get you signed up for that. But on top of that, after you get married, I want to make sure you're in community with other healthy marriages. And if things come along the way that are stressful, I want to make sure we find counselors for you because I want you to have a healthy, God-centered marriage, one that's so good that your kids see it. I mean, they say the statistics are this. If you have one good, healthy marriage, the effect of that goes five generations. So my goal in last night's message was not to be right. It was to show you God's plan. She wrote back just thanks. But church, hear me on this. Our goal as Christians is never to be right. Our goal as Christians is to show people Jesus. Because I can't change somebody's heart. Right? I can't change somebody's heart. I can't save them. Who can do that? Only Jesus can. 
See, what's incredible is when we speak in grace and truth, we actually have the ability to do something that society says we can't. We have the ability to disagree with someone and love them at the same time. We can absolutely disagree with them, but at the same time, love them so much that we want them to succeed. And what's so great about speaking in grace and truth is when we speak in grace and truth, then the Holy Spirit comes in and he convicts. He convicts hearts. And notice the word I'm using. I'm using the word convict, not condemn. Because what condemn says is you are not worthy. Your shame, your guilt. No, convict is this. Hey, there's something wrong, but we're going to give you the arm to get you out. So the Holy Spirit helps them get out of the ditch and move forward. Here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping many of you right now feel convicted. Maybe you've got a relationship right now. Maybe it's with kids or or people around you where you're going, you know what? I've been just grace and I need to be honest. I need to apologize and tell them, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm telling you the truth because I absolutely love you, but I'm going to be there to help you get out. And some of you, your relationships have been all about truth. And you need to bring the other side of grace. There's a reason why Jesus was full of grace and truth. Because it's only through grace and truth that there's a way forward. And when we show grace and truth, it's like Jesus' fingerprints are on our life. And when we live this out, people see Jesus. The problem is, is when we just live, live truth or we just live grace, what they see is a distorted version of Jesus that fits what our narrative, but not who Jesus actually was. See, here's what I believe. I believe the church is most attractive, most effective, and most like Jesus when it is full of grace and truth. See, what's so incredible about Jesus? He came down to this earth. He didn't have to do that. He came down to this earth and he called sin, sin, but then he paid for it. He said, yes, you've messed up, but I paid for it. I don't condemn you. But at the same time, I want what's best for you. I want you to live a life that is full, that is according to my plan, and not be tied down in the consequences of your own sin. I need you to understand that when you go away from me, no matter how far you go, there is nothing you can do that can make me love you less. And there's nothing you could do that can make me love you more. Jesus says, I need you to understand if you keep going that way, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt others. But just know the hurts, the sins, I've already paid for them. In fact, when you sin, I paid for it. When you sin again, I paid for it again. In fact, when I was up on that cross, Jesus says, when I was up on that cross, I knew every sin that you would commit and I decided you are worthy of forgiveness. So not only did he die for us, but he wants us to live the right way. And so he sends us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives with us. He, he gives us Knowledge on things we don't understand. He comforts us. He encourages us. He helps us understand God's word and God's way for our lives. It says in the Bible, all of this is available. If we just believe Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again. If we admit that we've sinned and ask for forgiveness. Like how it doesn't make sense that that's possible. Yeah, grace doesn't make sense. It doesn't, but Jesus is freely giving it to us. So right now, if you want to start that relationship with him, 
if you want to take that first step and go, you know what? I want to live out that life because now I realize it's not just about truth, but it's about grace. Because I need forgiveness, but at the same time, I need the truth to make sure my relationships and what I'm doing is in the same path that God wants me to go. What I'm going to do here in a moment is I'm going to say a prayer out loud that you can say silent right where you're at. You can start that relationship with him. We could, if everybody could bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to say a prayer right now that you can say to start that relationship with Jesus. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. I believe in your son, Jesus, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. Thank you for giving me grace. Thank you for bringing truth. I thank you for loving me first. Today, I want to do what you've called me to do. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you made that decision today, that is the greatest decision you will make. In fact, we would love to help you with some next steps to help you along this path. So right now I'm gonna ask the campus pastors to come up on all the campuses and close out the services with some next steps.